He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Other members of the society, unless you're well known enough in the community, will always question whether the Polynesian walking along the street is an illegal immigrant or a person living here legally. Pacific people are eight times more likely to be convicted of the same offence as a European New Zealander. This is the double overstaying thing. If you overstay your welcome in that family, they might tell on you. I think it's really hard for Palangis to understand what racism is. The 1970s was a time of massive social upheaval in New Zealand. A new generation wanted to change the world and they weren't afraid to shout about it. Equality for women, gay rights, environmental issues, flotillas sailing off to protest nuclear testing in the Pacific. In 1973, a new, younger, more liberal prime minister suggested the mood for change was reaching right into the corridors of power. Social justice is an essential prerequisite there was also a Māori renaissance underway, with a newfound recognition of the Treaty of Waitangi and Te Ao Māori. But this mood of peace, love and understanding only extended so far. Something else was happening in New Zealand under the cover of darkness. What became known as the Dawn Raids. Hello. Open the door, please. This is the police. We're looking for Mr Fomuena. Police were hunting down Pacific Island immigrants who were overstaying their visas, entering their homes in the early hours of the morning, demanding proof of their residency and deporting illegal workers back to the islands. Malo Lele, I'm your host, Koro Vakauta, and you're listening to Untold Pacific, a five-part series exploring dark corners of Pacific history, the Cook Island Sheraton Hotel, Black Saturday in Samoa, and the Fiji Coups. And in this first episode, we start in New Zealand with the Dawn Raids. Uh, Māori Pacific young people were being unlawfully detained by police, and this was very much our normal. In this recording from RNZ's The Detail on the lasting shameful legacy of the Dawn Raids, Reverend Alec Toliafor says the police stops and checks were happening before they became government policy. And even for young kids, the experience often involved physical violence and abuse and everyone was afraid. We would simply be detained for no apparent reason, and sometimes we were exposed to police brutality as a result of that detention. And this was three years before the actual dawn raids. All we were doing was walking down the street and being brown. I recall a Saturday evening, walking home from a friend's place, I was unlawfully detained in question, and when I asked why I was being questioned, I was just tossed in the police car, taken away, and then assaulted by the police, and then dropped back in my neighbourhood as though nothing had happened. We're just 15, 16-year-olds. There was no legal resources that we could access or that were affordable. And we're looking at a migrant population for whom English is a second language. It was even difficult at the time for people whose first language was English to understand the gobbledygook of law and civil rights. Now, before we dig deep into the dawn raids, we need to look at the growth in the Pacific population in New Zealand, which had risen dramatically from 2000 and 1945 
to more than 65,000 by the mid-1970s. And it all comes down to New Zealand's labour shortage during the 1950s and 60s. Around 12,000 New Zealanders had died in World War II, and as a post-war economic boom took hold, it was all hands to the pump, and the levers, knives and tools. The factories, meatworks and mills were all gasping for more workers. So, to fill the gaps, the New Zealand government introduced an immigration policy to attract workers from Pacific Island nations, including Samoa, Tonga, Niue and Fiji. My dad came on his own in 1949, 48, and then he sent for my mum and the kids. Misa Tauvewe, Dr Melania Nai, Senior Lecturer and Director of Research of Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland. Six of my siblings were born in Fiji or Samoa, and my youngest brother and myself were born in New Zealand. Dr Anai's father was part of the first wave of Samoan immigrants to come to New Zealand after the Second World War. He'd grown up in Fiji and was also one of the first Samoans at the time to join the Fijian army. Dr Anai says her upbringing was pretty traditional. Well, I was in Four Home Street, Greyland. We're just on the outskirts of Ponsonby. The world I knew was just home, school and family and church. And it was Newton Central's primary school, then Corfa Intermediate and Auckland Girls Grammar. So our world was just all Pacific, if you know what I mean. The racism and everything was there in that mix. Walking like around Ponsonby, because of, as girls, we, we were afraid to go out at night sometimes. It affected the boys more, because they would be fingered by the authority and police more so than the girls. And the fear was real. We could see it happening with, you know, uncles who used to hang around at K Road on a Thursday night. We'd see police and groups and be afraid. Afraid because of the colour of your skin, what would happen, you know? Oh, you step out of a home to go to school and you think, oh, what's going to happen today? That's going to make me feel bad. We'll come back to Dr Anai in a moment because that racial tension she felt is about to intensify. For the best part of two decades, the economy was strong thanks to good prices for wool, meat and dairy, mostly sold to Britain. But that started to change when wool prices fell in the 1960s, followed by an oil crisis in the early 70s, and then recession. It gave rise to unemployment, increasing crime rates, and in turn triggered fear, resentment and racism towards Pacific Islanders. As of 1972, the New Zealand population was just shy of 3 million, and the number of people who identified as Pacific Islanders had grown from that 2000 in 1945 to just over 50,000 in 1972. That's when New Zealand began taking a different stance. Though it had invited Pacific Islanders over to help with the labour shortage, Norman Kirk's Labour government first introduced the dawn raids in March 1974. And Muldoon's national government, elected in 1975, expanded the programme, enforcing the arrest and deportation of immigrant workers who were overstaying their temporary work visas. Yet this piece of archival audio from Tipuna Wai Korero in 1976, when the dawn raids were intensifying, illustrates that while Pacific Islanders were being targeted, Muldoon was painting a very different picture of New Zealand. No country on earth 
excels this country of ours in respect of the manner in which the people from many ethnic backgrounds live together harmoniously with the common bond between them that they are New Zealanders. I'd claim that we have avoided the perils of great disparity of wealth, of class distinction, of poverty, and perhaps of increasing importance in today's world, totalitarianism or the loss of democratic freedoms. Except freedom at that time was a gift that wasn't equally distributed, and the dawn raids proved that there were different sets of rules for different people. My father died when I was six. Uh, my mother protected me. Life in Auckland for Polynesian families was a mixed bag. And for Tingi Lao Ness, a Nguyen activist and musician, his mum made an effort to help keep him out of trouble. It was a violent neighbourhood. More than likely I would have joined a gang. And as a child, Tingi Lao was a good student. He was sheltered and protected by his mother in their single-parent home. She watched him like a hawk. She was a Christian that never went to church. She was a widow. I stayed home a lot, read a lot. That was my escape. I did well at school. But for young boys and men, there were few outlets. All the males in the families, alcohol was a big part of, of, of the family. No real sports. Boys' brigade, of course, but that was all church. And a lot of the young men eventually refused to go there and started drinking and hanging out together and eventually uh, forming gangs. Apaches, King Cobras, of course. Well, I was sort of kept away from all of that. Ting Lao also talks about the casual and institutional racism he saw as a kid, but the harsh reality didn't really hit home until his uncle disappeared one day. He used to go up to the King's Arms a lot, you know, after work. And then one day he just disappeared and we didn't hear where he'd gone or what had happened to him until we got a letter from District Health that he was dead. I would have been pre-intermediate school, standard four. Um, they said to mum to go and pick him up, identify him. And it wasn't until years later and I found out that he was arrested going home for being drunk, which was a police target anyway and that he had resisted, and because he didn't know how to speak English, he was put into a cell and kept on being aggressive, uh, not knowing how to speak English, I can totally understand that. He ended up in a mental institution in Porirua, and they ECT'd him. They fried his brains. ECT, or electroconvulsive therapy, involved passing an electric current across the patient's head, producing a convulsion. It was considered painless and was used to treat severe depression and mental disorders. You could say that it was witnessing these kinds of injustices and the experience he's about to have next that lays the foundation for activism when the dawn raids kick into gear. I've been about 16, I'm still going to school. I'm on the verge of dropping out because it didn't fit me any longer. I saw the racism there, experienced it. You know, at Mount Albert Grammar School, we were a minority there. When I was told by the headmaster to get a haircut, I had an afro then, um, and we were quite proud of our identity. Um, we weren't allowed to, and yet these other boys, white boys, of course, were allowed to grow their hair long, below the collar. I was told by the headmaster, called up to his office one morning and told to get a haircut, and I refused, and I tried to tell him that Niue 
um, the custom. You know, we have a haircutting ceremony for the eldest child. That was me. He didn't understand and tried to force me to stay and get a haircut, but I refused. And um, that was the end of Mount Albert Grammar for me. My father first came to New Zealand uh, through those labour schemes back in the 70s. Pakila o Aotearoa Manasi Lua or Manase is a Tongan community leader. My dad, he raided the dawn. You know, he woke up four in the morning every day, working right till 10, 10 in the evening. In 1974, Manasi's dad, Siosifalua, brought his wife and two children to New Zealand. And I was about three going on four. Tongans, it's definitely for better education and better lifestyle and a lot more work here. New Zealand wasn't the land of plenty that was promised, but a foreign place where they didn't speak the language. They were outsiders. And my name at school wasn't my real name. I had to use a, a false name called Peter Taulaki. My dad told me that was your name. Teachers used to call me and I would ignore them and they'd think I was, you know, something wrong with me, but that's because it wasn't my name. It was a bit of an experience growing up in New Zealand during those, those days. New Zealand was a far cry from what Manasseh's family had back home. In Tonga, his family was middle class, respected. His father was an accountant and they had a comfortable life. But in New Zealand, they were living week to week. So, you know, he worked for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But when he came here, he's just got to find a way to make ends meet. So they were here during the, the Dawn Raid era, and they lived um, with families mainly. But then we had our own flat in Vermont Street in Ponsonby. Uh, I do remember times when we would be staying in um, places like Grey Lynn or Mount Eden, uh, because these are really old homes and no carpet, wooden floors. So the cold is something I remember, but my dad was quite uh, innovative. You know, so he would use the oven as also a heater. So I grew up thinking that the oven was a heater. <laughs> they had to you know, open it up and, and the heat would radiate into the, the house. Later on, in hindsight, you realise that it was you know, hand-to-mouth. My parents would be out working. I'd be staying at a cousin's place down the road and always remembering Dad coming home late because he'd be working part-time jobs after his main job, so he worked at the freezing works at AFCO. And some of those jobs were tougher than others, one left behind memories he'd never forget. And then after that, he'd go cleaning at the old uh, hospital morgue under Grafton. During the Erebus disaster, you know, where that plane crashed and all those burnt bodies, they couldn't find any cleaners to, they wanted to go there, and my dad put his hand up. You know, before he passed on, he could still smell that kind of, you know, um, kerosene smell from the, you know, the, what he had to, to clean. From accountant to cleaning morgues, Silsifa was a hard worker who wanted a good life for his family. They had given up so much to be in New Zealand, and he is prepared to do whatever he could to ensure their well-being. Those are the kinds of jobs people, like my dad's generations, had to do, the, the work that nobody else would do, because his English wasn't great. His written English was better than mine, <laughs> so, so he was a very shy man. The problem for Siosefa, and ultimately for his family, is that he'd overstayed his visa and was living in New Zealand illegally. But, as Manasseh argues, that doesn't mean he wasn't a contributing member of society. Even though he was illegal here, he paid taxes his whole life. They actually don't make a dent in our economy in an adverse way. They actually provide taxes because they have to work because they can't qualify for benefits or anything like that. We'll come back to Manasseh, but before that, 
we need to get our heads around the law at the time and why there was so much concern about overstayers. When opportunities abounded in those boom years and more workers were needed, people from Samoa, Tonga, Fiji and other islands came in their thousands. According to some reports, they were sometimes offered as much as 10 times more than what they earned back home. Most came on three-month work visas, but employers who were desperate for labour turned a blind eye once the three months were up. So the workers continued to work and earn. Except when the recession hits, the layoffs begin and the mood starts to shift. Whether born in New Zealand or not, anyone with Pacifica blood and dark skin was looked on with suspicion. Then one day, there weren't enough jobs either. This infamous 1975 election ad from the National Party under its new leader, Robert Muldoon, shows the tenor of the times. The people became angry and violence broke out, especially among those who had come from other places expecting great things. Not that it stopped those from the Pacific arriving on New Zealand's shores. That same year, in 1975, more than 16,000 came on three-month visas. That's up from 6,000 two years earlier. When Muldoon won the election in 1976, the dawn raids and random stops intensified. And later that year, one senior Auckland police officer in October said that, quote, anyone who looks as though he was not born in this country should carry a passport. That month, police launched what they called Operation Pot Black. Over four days, they stopped and questioned 800 Polynesians. Back to Manaselua again. You didn't want to feel like you were a, a drain on a particular family. And as the raids and checks were stepped up, he remembers his family moving from home to home and the anxiety that kicked in. So dad would always pay his way. This is the double overstaying thing. If you overstay your welcome in that family, they might tell on you, <laughs> you know? So you've got to move around to share the laugh. So that's the other thing. One of the saddest things is, is our own people sometimes feel jealous of people who've come here poor, worked hard, even come here legally, and become really well off. You know, a lot of times when they succeed or they, they buy a car or even a house, they get told on by even their own family, you know, dobbing them in to the department. And to me, that's the lowest form of people, is people that will do that. And that threat of being dobbed in was real. Overstayers have that real fear of seeing it happening to, you know, even now with people who tell on family members. And it might be for valid reasons, like if someone is not paying their way, they're being a, a, a dick or, you know, breaking the law, yeah, send them home. You want people that are going to be here working hard and can contribute. Despite not being a burden to the system, they had to live like fugitives, ready to leave at a moment's notice. We had all these hiding places in the um, flat we lived in. We had um, exit plans. We would have signals that I didn't know, but my mum and dad already had these, you know, because we had uncles staying with us as well. Uh, and they were all overstairs. Uh, and, and there was a, one night where um, the signal was made and we all loaded up into our cortina because we heard the flat up the road getting raided. But you imagine eight Tongans in there. Then made our way up to Kaikohe. And one of my uncles had married uh, into the, one of the Ngāpuhi families there, the Tehaki family. Charlie Tehaki and his family took us in. A lot of the Tongans took off up north, sheltered by Māori family there. So we um, have a soft spot for Māori tangata whenua uh, who took us in. 
But while Manasseh says his parents were always on tenterhooks, they never gave the game away to the kids. Even though they feared authority and feared the police, they sheltered us from that. Over the years, I, I saw glimpses of, of the stress he would have been under. Yeah. You know, every time you hear a siren, you, you'd see, you see it, but they would never verbalise it. Because there's a stigma also if you get deported back home. Manate's parents fought to stay in New Zealand despite the menial jobs and discrimination and the reality of having no single place to call home. They're always trying, so they pay thousands and thousands of dollars to lawyers to try and get their permanent residency, but it's always, sorry, you've got to try again. Meanwhile, they're still working. Here's Tongan lawyer Clive Edwards in a 1976 radio programme, Te Puna Wai Kōrero. Continuation of search, arrest, uh, deport uh, business uh, must inevitably, as already conceded, affect uh, innocent people. 50% of the searches, as stated by the minister and his department, are unsuccessful. And this sort of provokes resentment and leaves lasting feeling of being treated as criminals. Those of us who are here legally are suspect. Let's go back to Professor Melania Nye. It was during university that she became awake to institutionalised racism, and her awareness was heightened when she met the Polynesian Panthers, a revolutionary activist movement founded in 1971. I was first year university. We might get the call during the day, it's a panther meeting, such and such, or we need to be here at a certain place, something's happening. The group was influenced by the Black Panthers in the United States and its fight for black unity. And when the dawn raids kicked off, that's when the Polynesian Panthers gained momentum. We delivered the West End newspaper around Ponsonby and Hume Bay to get money to pay for the office. The work we did as Polynesian Panthers was conscientising. It was making people aware of who we were. The group had a structure. Different people were allocated roles according to their expertise. Tony could play the guitar, so he became Minister of Culture. Um, uh, Wayne was a university student, so he can be, he's the Minister of Information. Um, Vaughan Sanft, he was in the hospitality industry. He became the Minister of Supplies. But for women and girls in the Polynesian Panthers, roles were limited. The girls became ministers of nothing. <laughs> we didn't aspire to that anyway. Us girls from the church at university, you know, we wouldn't be part of anything that we didn't think was disorganised and chaos. It was a time of revolution. Politically, everything was being questioned, critiqued and overturned. There was a lot of administration involved to keep the group running, but outside of the office, the group was active. They wanted their presence felt. When my Samoan friend told me about the Polynesian Panthers and that I should join to help my people, I did, straight away. Tingilau Ness again. One of our main tasks was to inform the public about what was going on, to um, expose Muldoon's lies and the National Party at the time, what they were doing to Pacific Island and Māori people, because at that time we had published the legal aid booklet. So we were trying to inform our people about their legal rights and what to do and what not to do. Uh, one of the strategies that we came up with was to go and dawn raid the uh, politicians in their own homes. So we piled into a car and went out to Howick, 
um, where we knew that uh, a politician, Bill Birch, and his family lived. We surrounded the house. Um, we used loud hailers and spotlights and um, shone the spotlights on their doors and windows and used the loud hailers and demanded at three o'clock in the morning, come out now with your passports. And um, as soon as the lights and that come on, we'd jump in the cars and take off. We knew that wasn't acceptable, nor was it legal, but we believed in passive protest at the time. And there were other times when the Polynesian Panthers were also under threat. Always danger. From the gangs who saw that we were in opposition, but when they saw us selling legal aid booklets or handing out pamphlets on how to deal with landlords and stuff, they left us alone. Yeah, there was always danger. So it wasn't just homes that were raided by immigration. Schools were targeted too. Fortunately, we had a, a couple of Tongan women in the office. Immigration come in and they're going, we're looking for this person. Welby Ings is a professor at AUT School of Art and Design. And in 2013, he was awarded the inaugural AUT medal for his contribution to learning and research. He says when the dawn raids were happening, New Zealand wasn't an inclusive place. He was teaching at a school in South Auckland at the time. You're in a woodwork room where you've got five machines roaring. You've got 30 kids, and you've got a little office out the back with a glass window in it, but one ear is always out there listening for the phone. Those three rings go, you yell out once, and then you switch, the wall, uh, switch on the wall and all the machines stop. So everybody knows when the machines all stop that something's happening. It's not there anymore because Western Springs rebuilt all this, but the woodwork shop had a massive tanner lathe in it, and underneath it was a trapdoor. Underneath there was supposed to be a little gap, but Seddon had been built on a dump, and the dump was subsiding, it was going down, 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 so these huge gaps were opening underneath the classroom. So we found that that was a place where you could go safely and hide if you needed to. You know, just recently they've, they've torn down that block, and they found when they turned over the desks, these kids had been writing their names and the date, because that was the last time that they were in there. But that wasn't as good as being able to hide underneath the building. You know, the kids were always on their best behaviour. They were always amazing when those people were there. But while the kids knew the drill, it doesn't mean they weren't affected. We turned the machines back on as soon as everyone was safe, so the lesson was shot. People just wanted to talk. And sometimes they didn't even want to talk about that. They just wanted to talk. So you had to sacrifice the lesson. But you also had to be sure that when they left that room, they were able to go out into the next, next part of their day. What you couldn't afford to do was build it into high drama. For many of these children, the dawn raids, visits from immigration, having to be invisible, was a way of life that just became normal. I'd been teaching in Otara when the dawn raids were on, so I was teaching kids who were seven or eight. For instance, the police came in to do the police liaison. One of the wee, wee boys is a lovely kid. The police had done this wonderful discussion. He asked if there any question. He said, why did you take my brother away? And the room went as silent as that. The policeman said, no, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. Yes, you did. So what kind of mark did the dawn raids leave on children and young people? You know, it's really hard for a kid to see themselves as criminal or, or socially wrong when they're actually a, just a good, lovely person. 
I never made the point of trying to dig into who you are or are you here legally or whatever. That's not my job. My job was to love and care for those kids and try and grow the best version of themselves inside. In the school, there were a lot of teachers didn't know this was going on, but it certainly wasn't something you discussed in the staff room. Not knowing was a way of keeping things safe. The dawn raids weren't just a world of adults, they impacted in very deep ways on kids. And those impacts actually became generational. It's not an incident that occurred between date X and Y. It permeates. But these kids showed amazing maturity and it didn't matter whether they were third formers or sixth formers. What about those on the other side of that resentment? Pacific Islanders who were here legally and in some cases were working in law enforcement. I enjoyed my time in the police. Mike Tafua spent 23 years in the New Zealand police force in a career that initially offered some exciting opportunities. Starting salary was about seven grand. There was only two or three others with Simon background. <clears throat> I did have a lot of input into the other Palangi cops, and some of them appreciated how you know, difficult it was for me. But while the money was good, social interactions were sometimes uncomfortable and it was isolating. He felt at odds with his new colleagues but kept tight-lipped because when you're new to a country and its culture, fitting in and keeping your head down is important if you want to get ahead. When I graduated and was posted to Auckland Central, I spoke with an accent and, of course, that immediately identified me as an outsider. And secondly... I did see a few, a few incidents in Auckland when I was in the force. I could sort of hear and see some innuendos, silly and stupid remarks about being brown. Mike could put up with that and shrug it off, but one day at work he was given a confronting task that went against his desire to help in the community. The task at hand? To search for overstayers. I was in the middle of the city. I was called the City Incident Patrol Car. One night, we were on starting from 7 to 3 in the morning. We got called into the watch house. It was a faxed message from Wellington headquarters. You had to form a squad, go to the places where most Polynesian people with brown skin congregate, ask for their identity as to their eligibility to stay in New Zealand. And I was one of the first squads who got selected too go in a van and go to uh, Cairo, where a lot of people go shopping on a Thursday night. He parked the van and stopped people, asking them about their status in New Zealand. So I was sworn to protect the Crown and protect the public and enforce any laws that was given to us. And I did just that. That was probably the first time that happened and you should hear the public outcry pretty bad. As a Pacific police officer, he was uncomfortable with his new role. I wasn't very happy with the police force and maybe I chose the wrong career. Deep down in your heart, you, you loved your people and of course the New Zealand government were asking for people to come and do the work for them at that time. The government legislated that any factory or industry in that industry to hire people who are overstayers would get fined $3,000, which was a lot of money in those days. After that, Mike was alienated by his own community, which left him feeling conflicted. Even friends and family didn't trust him. I thought a lot of them uh, considered me as a traitor. Some of them considered I didn't belong to them, that I was a white salmon. Some didn't even want to talk to me. 
It wasn't a very comfortable feeling. I'm a very community-oriented person, so I felt sorry for them. I used to go and visit some of them at the airport. They were put in uh, cells, they were ready to fly back to Samoa. Go and give them money, and sometimes I give them a suitcase to bring their clothes back. But I have no regrets in joining the place. In the end, the raids and random checks didn't last long. The public outrage in late 1976 saw the government and police back away from the strategy. Opposition parties, churches, community groups and even some national MPs attacked the policy, drawing comparisons to Nazi Germany and South Africa's apartheid system. A study done a decade later showed Polynesians made up only one-third of overstayers at the time. 86% of those prosecuted for overstaying were Pacific Islanders. And despite the raids and checks, the number of overstayers from north, south, east and west continued to grow through the late 70s and 80s. If the point had been to enforce the law and stop people overstaying, it was a failure. But the injustice of those years shone a spotlight on the failings in Aotearoa's race relations. Professor Anai again. One time I was a mother of three kids working full-time, doing part-time university, finishing my MA degree off, walking down Albert Street. Just happened to glance at this car. A skinhead puts his head out and says, what are you staring at, you black bitch? I think it's really hard for Palangis to understand what racism is. They will never have that feeling of what we experience because of who we are. So what can be learned from the dawn raids and did New Zealand ever hold itself to account for what happened? Well-beings. There were a whole lot of institutions who were complicit without it being obvious. Even just in attitudes. In those attitudes there were some negative, difficult attitudes even in teaching. And, and while I have immense respect for teachers and it's something I've devoted my life to, there is the spectrum from kindness to racism within the teaching profession too. Reverend Alec Tuliofor. Quite often the comments from young, young people and the feedback from the schools is that uh, they understand or, or are empowered to stand up and speak. It comes from the fact that we were 15 and we were 16 at the time and we stood up uh, you know, against some pretty terrible odds and we made our voice heard. We made not only things better for Pacific people, but for New Zealand people in terms of the systems, the justice system, education system. These people have been traumatised, the children now, you know, they're in their 50s and stuff. They've been traumatised and they've never had a chance to get that out of them. A lot of their people are the shame of being deported, fairly or unfairly. I've heard of Cook Islanders and New Wayans and Tokelauans being asked for their passports during those days. The police were told to actually ask anyone who looks like an islander whether they have a passport or right to be here. Even Māori were asked because they look like us. Completely racial profiling. I bet you they didn't ask anyone from the UK whether they had a passport on the street. Overstayers now are lucky that they didn't have to go through what we did back in the 70s. Hopefully we won't see dogs being led into flats and... But although police now have some certain powers that, you know, uh, recently announced, you're kind of wondering whether we're heading back to those good old days, uh, but um, hopefully not. That's why these stories are important. 
You're listening to Untold Pacific, and I'm your host, Korovaka Uta. This five-part series is produced by Sonia Yee and was made possible through the RNZ and New Zealand On Air Innovation Fund. Special thanks to Nga Taonga Sound and Vision for archival audio and raw interview material courtesy of Tiki Lounge Productions. The executive producer for the podcast and series team is Tim Watkin. If you'd like to listen again or to find out more, head to rnz.co.nz forward slash untold pacific, where you'll also find a video series by Tiki Lounge. You can also download the series wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time. Ome a'a.